2: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, Joe Biden and just about every elected Democrat in America make one final run at Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema on voting rights. Dr. Fauci says we're all getting Omicron and calls one Republican senator a moron. And the one and only Alyssa Mastromonaco joins us to break down the worst punditry of the week in another round of Take Appreciator. Uh, But first, this week, Keep It is celebrating its four-year anniversary Four years without a single solitary episode featuring me. Me either. (laughs) You either, but it's not like a uh, an active vendetta against you. You're just you're just forgotten. Yeah,
3: it's fine. (laughs) Is it better to be forgotten than hated? I'm not so sure.
2: Yeah, no, you might have it better. But anyway, congrats to Ira, Lewis, Aida, and the entire Crooked team who works on Keep It for reaching this incredible milestone. Uh, New episodes of Keep It drop every Wednesday. Please check it out. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, The endgame on the Democrats' crusade to change the filibuster and pass voting rights has finally arrived. Over the next few days, the House is expected to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which have now been combined into one bill called, wait for it, the Freedom to Vote Act, colon, John R. Lewis Act. This is a small thing in everything we're about to talk about. But do they realize that the John Lewis Freedom to Vote Act was just right there for the taking as a combined name? Do they have to do the Democratic messaging thing where you put a fucking colon in between two, two titles and call it a message and call it, call it mean, a title?
3: You're right. Like this, is, It's small potatoes. In our very
2: own. small. Very small.
3: But I mean, just even from the beginning, when everyone ran on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. As the larger democracy reform bill. And they decided not to call it that and call this other bill the John Lewis bill for reasons that make no sense.
2: The Freedom to Vote Act two, colon. Too free, <laughs> Too two free, two <fast>. votes. <laughs> two free, two votes. All right. So the House is going to pass. There's a complicated procedure where the House is going to pass both these bills combined into one. Senate Republicans will then try to filibuster both bills. Senate Democrats will then debate changes to the filibuster. And from there, no one has any idea what will happen, but we have some idea maybe at this point. Uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are still opposed to eliminating the filibuster. Uh, the votes for a special voting rights exception to the filibuster aren't there either. Manchin has said he's open to the return of a talking filibuster where senators would have to stay on the floor for as long as they want to block the bill. But it's unclear if he'll vote for that change without Republican support. And Cinema just reiterated her support for the filibuster in a uh, no labels Mad lib speech thursday morning (laughs) unity division partisanship that's what her speech was that's what i heard uh in any event joe biden is having what i can only imagine to be a deeply enjoyable lunch with all 50 senate democrats today to get all this squared away fresh off his big speech in georgia where he delivered his most passionate call yet for filibuster reform and voting rights let's take a listen
4: i've been having these quiet conversations with members of congress for the last two months i'm tired of being quiet sadly the united states senate designed to be the world's greatest deliberative body has been rendered a shell of its former self it gives me no satisfaction in saying that as an institutionalist as a man who was honored to serve in the senate but as an institutionalist I believe that the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail. And if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this. When it comes to protecting majority rule in America, the majority should rule in the United States Senate.
2: So, I kind of feel like the dog who caught the car here, Dan. Uh, we we have wanted a Democratic president to come out against the filibuster for years now. Uh, Joe Biden, one of the Senate's biggest institutionalists when he was a senator, finally does it. And now where are we? Uh, just, just waiting for Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to have a last-minute epiphany that has eluded them for the last year? What?
3: Man, I don't know. Is, I mean... No matter what happens in the next seventy-two hours, even though we know what's going to happen in the next seventy-two hours, the filibuster is—we're from, is, from the future.
2: Yes, right. Yes, you're listening. You're listening to this podcast probably in the future. We we know what's happening.
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the ghost of I don't know. future obstruction. Fuck knows.
2: But look, the the, <laughs> the filibuster just
3: as, put aside how it's being used to stop voting rights bills. The filibuster itself is a stupid, misused rule that is bad. And there are times in which that's going to come back on us very poorly as the party out of power who has a where the Senate is greatly disadvantaged against us, all right? where we have a great disadvantage in the Senate. But it's still wrong. It's just, it is just a stupid – it's a terrible way to run a government, particularly in a time of great polarization to depend that the solution to anything must be compromised means you'll do almost nothing. Like the only things that have happened in recent years of consequence have happened – on a majority vote using the budget reconciliation process. So I think Joe Biden turning on the Senate, I am for that. But it does, the way this has played out this week, and with Sinema going to the floor of the Senate to announce mm-hmm. our opposition to the filibuster prior to Joe Biden showing up to make his last case, it just sort of embodies how terrible this week has gone for everyone involved. And I sort of feel, you know, we have said for years, you got to get caught trying. Right. There are sometimes it's better to fight and lose and not fight at all. This week may be the counterpoint to that. <laughs> I mean, and it's like it's not, I don't know that I mean,
2: what else was he? I guess the question is, what else was he supposed to do?
3: I don't It's not. not I don't even I don't blame Joe Biden. He yeah, I No. I mean, it's it, it, I mean, it is just there are times when nothing will go right. And this is for presidents. And this is one of those weeks. And I, you know, I he made a powerful case. Last week on January 6th, he made a powerful case today. I want him to be making that case to the country more often as this year progresses. And we we can talk about later in this podcast why that is. But this sort of idea that we're going to hold these big votes, we're going to set a deadline, and no one, and the no one is primarily Senate Democrats here, had any chance of success from the beginning. That is the problem here. And we are we are today where we were yesterday, where we were six months ago, where we were a year ago. And nothing has changed and I'm not sure anything anyone would have done in the interim
2: would have changed that. Well, Mrs. Lincoln, what do you think of Biden's speech?
3: The, the speech was great. <laughs> I, you know, the, the filibuster parts are, you know, we care about that. And I'm glad he made the case against it because we need to get rid of it. And it may not, it's obviously not going to be this week that we do it. But at some point, and to do that, you need powerful, important Democrats, particularly someone with the credibility like Joe Biden to make that case. The part that's more important, I think, is his case about the dangers to democracy, about the importance of the right to vote. And I think that is very important. That's what you want to hear more of, regardless of what happened, because all the headlines are going to be Democrats failed to pass filibuster reform or Democrats failed to end the filibuster. But the real story here and the one that really matters to people as we head in November is Republicans block voting rights. Republicans block attempts to stop election subversion. And like, that's the, the part of the story we're going to have to get to.
2: Um, yeah. Like did, did the speech move Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema? No. Seems like not. no. <laughs> yes. Seems like a no on that. Um, but just from a, I agree with everything you said about the speech itself from a, a speech giving perspective, I would say he's good with the crowd behind him. Like, he, he ad-libbed a few times. Some of the ad-libs are funny. Some of them, I'm sure, you know, people at the White House were covering their eyes, right? But, like, it was still better... Than just like, you know, sitting in the White House, reading off a script in front of you out, out in the uh, in the East Room and then walking back by yourself. You know, like it's good for him to have energy. He's more energetic. He's more forceful. He should do it more often. I thought the speech was great. I, I thought it was great, particularly for what you the reason you said, which is it it was about voting rights, but it wasn't just about voting rights. It was what the larger threat to democracy, which I think is really important. It's central to his message has been since he ran for office. You know in some in the speech, there's a bit of a John Meacham issue in these speeches sometimes <laughs> where the the audience is uh history books when it should be regular Americans, something that Joe Biden has always understood more than most politicians um but that's a minor thing you know that I'm sure. Uh, Biden's speechwriter I Reddy and, and Mike Donlin can take care of while well, Meacham's busy telling reporters that he wrote the speech. <laughs> seems a lot to of be, tension in the speechwriter
3: community coming out here it's on the pod. It's just a
2: little, it's a weird thing to go out to like have to help on a speech and then go run around the day after being like, yep, that was my line. That was my line <laughs> because I said it on Morning Joe earlier and now I put it in the speech. It's a weird thing to do. Weird thing to do. One,
3: um, just one thing I've, I've been, that I thought from this speech and from the speech last week is... One thing we all need is more Joe Biden out there making his case. And I look, I'm we're in a pandemic. He's got a lot of shit on his plate. It is hard to do the sort like the logistics behind doing the sorts of events he did yesterday or Tuesday, I guess are harder in this world. traveling is harder, the staffing take with sure. you is are all of that. But as we ramp up, Joe Biden making his case for his issues in his presidency is the by far the best weapon we have to try to shift some of the political dynamics heading into november
2: right because he's gonna like i mean other democrats can and should do that as well but he's the president of the united states and that's going to get coverage and then the the biden message and the white house story is going to be part of the cycle right <laughs> part of the constant news cycle and i think a lot of times in the past year it's been missing at times and you're right part of it's because it's 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 hard anyway to set up a White House event when you're president. And you have all the logistics and security and all that kind of stuff. In the middle of a pandemic, I can't imagine how much harder uh, it, it is. But he is he is better when he has people around him and he's on the road.
3: And they've been playing the ins. They've been playing the inside game, trying yes, to get these bills passed, which is also the right thing to do. But it is worse. It's time. There's a there's a shift happening here. I think, which is very good.
2: Well, I think the key line was the one that we started the clip with, which is you know he's been having these quiet conversations for two months and he's tired of being quiet, which I thought was a, a good line and also one that felt. Uh, very true. (laughs) Sometimes you say lines and you're like, oh, yeah, this one is this one's real. Um, Here's a sample media reaction from CNN's Casey Hunt. President Joe Biden, freshly elected, changing his position on the filibuster might have moved the needle in the Senate. Might have. It's a much steeper climb now, as his approval rating downward trend clearly shows. What do you think? Would Manchin and Cinema have supported getting rid of the filibuster if Joe Biden had only asked them 12 months ago? Was he just late? Was that part of Cinema Speech today? You were too late. You were 12 months too late, Joe.
3: <laughs> uh, just to give people a little behind-the-scenes peek at how things go. So I texted you this tweet uh, Tuesday afternoon. And what happened?
2: I can't remember. Did
3: you spill your Diet Coke in anger? If I remember correctly. Oh, I
2: was. I was, wa- <laughs> I was. I was walking through the office. I had my phone and I had a Diet Coke and was walking back to my desk and I saw and I saw your text and I got so mad. I dropped both the Diet Coke and the phone on the floor. Yes. <laughs> Fortunately, no one was in the office. to see it. <laughs> it's <was> just <sighs> just me yelling. Just <laughs> but is, yeah, no, I think that was ridiculous.
3: I mean, it is like. Is there possibly a chance some way that Joe Biden could have gotten or any more to Chuck Schumer or all everyone listening could have gotten Joe Manchin cares and same change mine? Maybe, but it seems unlikely. But I certainly think that Joe Biden really turning the screws on Joe Manchin just weeks after losing Joe Manchin's state by 39 points is not really good. It's not – that is not the issue here. It's not Joe Biden's political capital that is stopping this. It is the political incentives of the people involved, and those have not changed.
2: Part of this is the coverage of politics is always a narrative, and you need twists and turns and stuff like that. But we have – I think we have all, us included – like fallen victim to this idea that there's going to be, you know, there's going to be some epiphany. They're going to change their mind when it's like, when you listen to mansion and cinema, whatever you want to say about them, like their views on the filibuster have been very consistent the whole year. And again, we've talked about this before. Like there is leverage with cinema. We should primary her in 2024. Great. Looking for candidates. (laughs) Joe Manchin is probably gonna be the last Democratic senator in West Virginia. There's no political pressure that can move him. So we're fucking stuck. And we've got to go win more elections and, and and elect more Democrats in order to enact these changes. And that's a that's a frustrating reality. And it is, as you are all very much aware of, extremely boring to keep saying over and over and over again. But that doesn't mean that it's not the truth. What did you make of the rest of the media coverage? I feel like the White House didn't get the uh, the clean headlines they wanted. Here's one from Business Insider that really sums it up. Biden voting speech boycotted by activists overshadowed by football win.
0: Tough.
3: <laughs> it's just like you can't catch a break. Like on paper, doing this, this was, they were trying to get Build Back Better done before Christmas. That obviously didn't work. Then you have the anniversary of January 6th and jo- – and, Chuck Schumer sets his deadline. So this is the time when it makes sense. And going to Atlanta, of all places, makes sense. It is the-
2: Cradle of civil rights, as he said in his speech.
3: Yes. And it's also the epicenter of Republican voter suppression, all happening Correct. in one place, election subversion. Like There is a Republican governor being primaried for not overturning the will of the voters. <laughs> it is where it's all happening. So going there it makes sense. And then on the week you want to go there, you have just at the general backdrop of- a huge surge in the pandemic happening. You get inflation numbers. We put inflation at a 40-year high. And then you get a Quinnipiac poll, which shows your approval rating at 33%. Like, I don't think that's right necessarily, but it drives narratives. And then the day you scheduled your speech, this is the only one they sort of control, but it's also sort of hard to figure out how how to plan around is you have your speech in Atlanta, Georgia, the morning after the University of Georgia wins the National championship, also for the first time in 40 years. 40 years ago, inflation was super high and Georgia was national champions. And now we're back again. And so it's just, it's like, what do you, let it's me just. Great. It's it, not great. It's not great. You can plan everything right in the White House and get screwed by events. And that made this harder. Does it, I mean, the speech is still good. People will still consume it. The coverage and the headlines that like people like you and I. Mainstream, like this is a business headline. You business insider behind a paywall, no one will ever cross. So it's not like that's really <laughs> affecting the electorate. And I, and I've seen some of the local Georgia coverage, which has been excellent. It's not the top story, mind you, because Georgia won that championship. But people in Georgia are getting the coverage, but it's it is suboptimal. And you're they've been in Biden's been in this bad news spiral for since August, and it's hard to get out of. And it's really in. You know, he, there needs to be a circuit breaker. And they haven't been able to find it yet.
2: So if this goes down, as it is expected to do over this weekend, um, Democrats have another option, which is working with Republicans to reform the Electoral Count Act. We've talked about this uh, last couple of weeks. Um, but Greg Sargent at The Washington Post was told that Democrats are expected to introduce their own bill on the Electoral Count Act. I think Angus King, Amy Klobuchar is working on this. Um, that would do the following. One, require a supermajority in each chamber in order to reject a state's electoral votes, something like three-fifths. Um, two, create a judicial review for if a state legislature tries to appoint its own electors. And three, clarify that the vice president can't overturn the election, which is something that apparently needs clarifying. Um, so this would be much stronger than the previous proposals, which didn't really do anything about state legislatures overturning an election. That was the problem that that I think I pointed out last pod. Um, What do you think about it?
3: I think the three-fifths bar to overturning an election is the exact right thing to do. I mean, it's a sad statement on the politics in this country that we have to have a supermajority to stop people from overturning the will of voters, but that is clearly where we are, and that would make it very, very hard to steal elections.
2: Yeah, and I think the the, the state legislature provision too is actually quite good. It depends on like how you set up the judicial review, of course, but I think it's it's pretty good. Um, Mark Elias pointed out that in the new um, Freedom to Vote: colon, John Lewis Act bill, that there's some more election uh, subversion provisions there. Um, specifically, there's they included a federal right to vote and to have that vote counted, which means that if your vote does not is not reflected in the official tallies, you have the ability to sue in the D.C. Circuit Court. So that's a good provision, too. I don't know if Democrats will include that in their Electoral Count Act. I don't know if Republicans will go for it. But I do think if this goes down and and somehow Democrats could find, I think they only have like four Republicans in the Senate right now who are interested, but if they could somehow find 10 Republicans to just do basic election subversion stuff, you don't get all of the provisions that we had in freedom to vote, which are very important provisions and very good. But if you could do something to prevent election subversion, I would fucking do it. I would th- I would work on that.
3: Do you think we're making a mistake by tying our hands behind our back and preventing Kamala Harris from overturning the election in 2025 if we need it?
2: That's um, that's you're using your inside voice on the pod again. <laughs> yes,
3: I think it's so <laughs> funny how many people think that's like the biggest deal, and then it's like that's not gonna that's not gonna stop the election from being sold in 2024 because we have the vice president.
2: <laughs> it would be the most it would be the most democratic party thing to do yes to 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 pass this and then have a bunch of well this is this is what was my problem with doing the electoral count act without doing anything about the states because the states the republican state legislatures are the real threat and if you don't do anything about the republican state legislatures but you do tie the hands of the vice president and democrats in congress then you could be looking at that kind of an out- that kind of a bad outcome but if you do something to stop the states and then do something to stop congress from overturning the election. Basically, no one should be able to overturn the election because the people who vote should get to decide who wins. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> Wild. That's what I'm for. That's what I'm for. Um, so then let's say, like, if all legislative solutions fail, or even if the Electoral Count Act passes, but we still don't have voting rights legislation, what should Democrats do and say about the threat to voting rights and democracy? Is talking about these issues on the campaign trail the best way to win the power we need to actually pass these bills, should we make democracy a central issue in the midterm?
3: There's been a lot of discussion this week with people throwing polls in people's faces that shows that the people, <laughs> the issues people care about most are the pandemic and the economy. And then there was a set of focus groups that Alex Rorty of McClatchy, I believe, tweeted out, which showed that January 6th and the threats to democracy were not top of mind and that's sort of one of those like no shit Sherlock poll findings, which is in the middle of a once in a century pandemic, and the highest inflation in forty years. People are probably gonna those those are gonna be top of mind for everyone. A pollster calls you says, "What are you most worried about?" It's probably trying to keep your family healthy and pay groceries before you get to a threat to democracy, which won't even manifest itself necessarily for till the end of this year, next year, whatever else. But I think that – so some people look at that and say, see, Democrats are making a mistake by doing this, that you shouldn't talk about democracy. People don't care. And there's just this fundamental difference between how Republicans and Democrats think about messaging. Republicans, for the most part, decide what they want to be top of mind to voters on Election Day, and then they talk about that, regardless of how it polls down. And Democrats tend to say, this is what voters care about now. This is what we're going to talk about. And maybe it's the best thing for us. Maybe it's not the best thing for us, But we're going to try to win what's top of mind. And obviously – Republicans have this advantage and they have this giant megaphone, mega Media, Fox, Facebook, that helps them shift the conversation in ways we don't. But I think if you were to sit here and say, what do we want voters to care about? And it's not, we should be, I want to be very clear, it's not a zero-sum game. You can talk about threats to democracy and you can talk about the economy and all those things. We don't have to just pick one thing. But if you think about how we built the coalition that gave us the House, the Senate and the White House, it was a bunch of people who had never been involved in politics before, people who had not previously supported Democrats, coming together with the Democratic base because of the unique threat that Trump and Trump isn't face in this country. And therefore, I think it to keep that coalition together and engaged, we have to make the case that the crisis that brought us together in the first place, that got us engaged, is not over, and in fact, may be growing. And that's harder to do with Joe Biden in the White House, but I think that is an argument for making the threat of democracy and the threat of Trumpism writ large, a big part of our message. This has to be the only part, but it has to be – we need people to care about that and think about that if we want them to get involved and vote for us in 2022, if that makes sense.
2: It does make sense. I think the big challenge – we've talked about this before – is um, figuring out a way to uh, fuse people's economic concerns with their concerns about uh, democracy. And so look, that that focus, the focus groups these, these, uh, that you talked about that Alex Rorty was tweeting about – um, they were folk, there were two groups of moderate voters, either Trump Biden voters or Trump voters who regret their vote. Um, they did not bring up January 6th as a big deal. Some of them thought that Biden and Democrats embellish what happened when they talked about it. They might have politicized a tragedy. There was a little bit of that. But then there was a lot of people who towards the second half of the focus group said the attack was terrible. Democracy is in danger. It was right for Biden to speak. In that Quinnipiac poll that you cited that has where Biden has a 33 percent approval rating, 58 percent of Americans said the country's democracy is in danger of collapse. Fifty three percent said they're worried there'll be another attack like one six Um, and 61 percent thought that Trump bears some or a lot of responsibility. Sixty percent say they would not like him to run again. So just to focus on the, the 58% who think that, um, you know, the country's democracy is in danger of collapse, that's a pretty big number. And I wonder if the challenge is, it's, it's not just like, yeah, do you keep hammering January 6th and talking about January 6th, or is there something bigger and deeper that people are worried about when they say that they're worried that democracy is about to collapse? And I think that so far, partly because we were trying to pass this legislation, we have talked about the threat to democracy narrowly in terms of voting, the right to vote. But I think we need to broaden that as a message for the midterms and include what it looks like. You know, it's, it's democracy in terms of voting. It's economic democracy. It's, you know, like there, there's just a, a, a country that is open to everyone, where everyone has a chance, right? Like there, there's got to be a way to understand people's concerns that they're having in their everyday lives while still talking about this larger threat to the system, which is going to prevent us from improving their lives. You know, like it's, it, they got to work it out, but I don't think people say, oh, you got to do both, which is sort of like a lazy answer. Um, but like, it's about, it's about one message that incorporates all of the different concerns and threats that people face. And I don't think that Democrats are close to it right now.
3: <laughs> I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. It's very hard. I don't have a, uh, an answer that I feel good about. I just one small point here. I think we have to be. I think we have to be careful about the democracy is in danger polling because that's like a rorschach test, right? In a lot of these polls, it's Republicans who the the ones whose party are doing voter suppression, they support putting in voter ID laws that they support, who think that January sixth was a protest and that the election was. They think democracy is in danger because Democrats are stealing elections. Democrats. Yeah.
2: This. This one – party breakdown on this had Democrats, independents, and Republicans almost at the same levels.
3: Yeah, which is – sort of belies what's happening in the real world. And so, like, there needs to be a little more specificity into some of these questions, which campaign polling will have and media polling will not because they serve different purposes.
2: Oh, I, I was going to say, like, I think this is why you need both polling and focus groups, right? Focus groups are only small number of people, so they can't tell you everything. But polling is just numbers, so you don't really know what's behind the numbers. You need to do both together. <laughs> You'd love to see some focus groups where you sat voters down and who were concerned about democracy, concerned about democracy collapsing and say, why do you feel that way? What are the things that make you worried about the country? What would you like to see happen? That kind of stuff. Because um, I do I, I think it's a, an area for much more research as we get closer to the midterms of like what's really look, the 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 right track, wrong track. Is it like historic highs for, right, for a wrong track right now? <laughs> um, would love to find out from people why they think that, right? Um, not just random people in diners, <laughs> but like, you know, Democrats, uh, swing voters, people who sat out the last election, people who might want to sit out this election, people who have never voted before, independents, right? Like you'd want to go through different groups and find out what exactly what people are feeling right now um, as, as, as you put together a message. Um, we will end this segment with some good news as we're talking about elections and, um, and, and how we need to win them. Um, here's a note from Ben Wickler to Tommy since their interview on Tuesday's episode. Quote We've raised over $110,000 online since the day that Ron Johnson announced, with a big bump after my interview on PodSave. This is 28% of what we expected to raise over the entire month in just a few days. The PodSave community has definitely been showing up in this fight to defeat Ron Johnson, and I'm so grateful. Fantastic! Thank you, everyone. Good job, Pod Save America listeners. Um, I think we should help Ben get to fifty uh, percent of their goal by uh, by Monday. Monday by next yeah. pod. Let's be right.
3: My, yeah. Well, you but know next
2: what? pod. Sorry, we record Monday. Next pod Tuesday. Let's do by. Let's do it by yeah, Tuesday. Chuck Schumer's
3: not the only one who can have a deadline around here. Let's do it.
2: All right, Yeah. <laughs> this one will. Except this this deadline will come with uh you know good news. <laughs> We'll accomplish something with this deadline. Uh Wisdems.org is where you're gonna want to go to help donate to the Wisconsin Democratic Party so that they have the resources they need to beat Ron Johnson. Again, we hold if the Democratic senators who are up win, and we beat Ron Johnson, that's one less Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema that we have to care about. <laughs> Sounds good to me. You flip a nut, you flip Pennsylvania. That's now you don't have to care about Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema. Uh, what a what a world.
5: Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash PSA.
1: You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
5: How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on. Oh, Crunch Island? He's <gasps> <It's> Jean foot! <Lefort.
0: laughs>
5: and he stole our Crunch! Quick, the zip line! He's getting away! Throw our last Crunch Berry! No! <laughs> no one steals my Crunch Berries. I think you mean my Crunch Berries. Choose your own Crunch Venture with Captain Crunch.
2: Talk about Omicron. Another cheery subject. (laughs) 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 There's been quite a bit of Omicron news over the last week. Um, We've had plenty of experts on to talk about the health implications. Uh, Today, the two of us are going to talk about the political challenges, which are many. Um, But let's start with some good news. So the data suggests that the latest wave may be peaking in cities that were hit early, like New York and Washington. Um, The hope there is that the rapid surge in cases here in the U.S. will be followed by a rapid decline uh, like we've seen in South Africa and like we're starting to see in the U.K., uh, which means that the Omicron wave would last four to six weeks. Um, Here's the tougher news. Uh, The wave has yet to hit some of the most unvaccinated parts of America at a time when healthcare workers and hospitals have been stretched to their breaking point. And even after the surge is over. Here's what Dr. Fauci had to say this week about the latest variant.
6: Omicron, with its extraordinary, uh, uh, unprecedented degree of efficiency of transmissibility, will ultimately find just about everybody. Those who have been vaccinated and vaccinated and boosted would get exposed. Some, maybe a lot of them, will get infected, but will very likely, with some exceptions, do reasonably well in the sense of not having hospitalization
4: and death.
2: Cool, 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 cool. Uh, so I think, I think a lot of the debates we're seeing right now over school closures and staff shortages and hospital, hospital capacity will change quite a bit um, when the Omicron wave is over sometime in February after a very rough January. But I want to talk about what happens then in a situation where COVID, A, has likely infected most Americans, like Fauci said. Uh, B, is still extremely transmissible. And C, is a real threat to the unvaccinated, but is somewhere between a bad cold and a bad flu for something like 90 plus percent of fully vaccinated people who get it. What do you do and say about that if you're the Biden administration?
3: What Fauci is really saying without saying it is COVID is a problem to be managed, not solved. And I think it's going to be incumbent on the Biden administration. I suspect we're probably about a week away from this happening. This is not based on anything anyone has told me, but just my guess of a shift from the message that Joe Biden had said from the beginning, which is we're going to crush the virus to we are going to, I don't know what the right words are, but we're, ba- we are going
2: to gently stomp on it.
3: <laughs> it's, we are going to, <laughs> we're going to protect America. Push it out the of virus. the way. <laughs> and I think, so like, what does that look like from the Biden perspective I think there are a couple of things. One is changing the metric of success. When you have told people that we are going to return to normal and we're going to crush the virus, which I think was a very legitimate expectation over a year ago when before we knew that the Republican party was going to shift from being boosters of the vaccine to refusing to getting vaccines or boosters. So you have to, so you have to shift from, we're going to crush the virus. Everything's gonna be back to normal to We are going to give you the tools you need to live your life as normally and safely as possible. And you saw Biden do some of that today with more, with a commitment to more masks, more high quality masks and more testing, more testing sites, reinforcing, um, Hospitals and essential, you know, and healthcare workers, keeping schools open, doing everything we can to make it normal. Because even if the virus were to mostly recede into the background, life is not going to return to normal in America for a long time. Because this was a traumatic event, right? Psychologically, economically. And you just, it's hard to even fathom. Like, I was just trying to think back to. I saw a picture from two years ago today, like, in, uh, like a, you know, Apple Photos memory. And it's like, I'm out with people and no one has masks on and we're just like having fun and we have no fucking clue what's about to happen. And right. to imagine what we've all been through and what our kids have been through and the people who, you know, this is, uh, you know, we have not in this country suffered this scale of death in such a short period of time since the world wars. And so it's going to take us a long time. So I think you're shifting to a different, Metric where you're focused on different things than just stopping people from getting infected. Right. I think that's sort of how you have to talk about it and think about it and guide your policy to it. Cause I think we're running, we're running out of people to vaccinate. Once we get once God willing, soon as fucking possible, get kids zero to five vaccinated, then right. we've just, there's not much more you can do with the vaccine hesitant, I think, to get them there.
2: So this week we had six former Biden advisors laid out a plan for what they call a new normal um, that talks about how we can live with COVID-19 is an endemic virus, which is basically what you're, you're talking about. I think part of the, um, the confusion among Americans, understandably, has been it seems like there's all these shifting strategies from public health officials, experts, the administration. But the reason that they're shifting is because the virus changes with new variants. And so if, if I was the Biden administration, I would say new variants require new strategies. Here's ours, Right. COVID-19 may not completely disappear from our lives, but it will no longer control our lives. And then, as you said, we have all the tools we need to move beyond this pandemic. The most important are still vaccines. I, I would go back to that um, because vaccines continue to offer, even with this variant, extremely high protection against hospitalization and death. Um, they also, according to the, the one peer-reviewed published study we have about long covid among In people who have been vaccinated, uh, vaccinations reduce the chance of long COVID by at least 50%, if not more, in the one study we have. But there's a lot more uh, to be learned about that. Vaccines are free and available to every single American above five. Kids under five should be able to get them in a few months. Wherever we can, we'll require vaccinations in order to keep people alive, just as we have with so many other illnesses in the past. We've also developed therapeutics, uh, therapeutic treatments for people who get COVID that will also keep them out of the hospital, including finally for people who are immunocompromised, the FDA finally uh, approved one in December that that uh there's that uh should help people who are immunocompromised. Um, we're going to ramp up treatments uh, of all of these therapeutic treatments this year, so that we're going to have these pills for like everyone who needs them eventually. If you want more protection than the vaccine provides, you can wear an N95 mask indoor and crowded settings. That will protect you. That will protect you even if everyone around you is not wearing a mask. We're going to send those to everyone. That's what they announced today. They're going to send 995s to people finally. Um, they're going to make sure there's enough testing, better ventilation in schools, offices, government buildings, keep developing better treatments and better vaccines, double down on efforts to vaccinate the world because it's the right thing to do and because that's the best way to prevent other variants from popping up. And if they do pop up, we'll be ready. And if, there's, if there are future surges or waves, hopefully they're not, but they may be, um, we, sh- we may need to put in place temporary restrictions to prevent our hospitals from filling up or our healthcare system from breaking. Other than that, people should live their lives. You know? Like, I, th- I just think you have to... The, 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 the trick with... I mean, as soon as I saw Omicron and, and started learning about Omicron, I thought a, a, a variant that is more transmissible, but milder, especially milder in vaccinated people, only somewhat milder in unvaccinated people... It's going to be the, the, the trickiest political challenge of all, because if it was something much more severe, then there'd be um, sort of uh, much more support for more restrictions. If it was something that was much less severe, <laughs> much less milder and not as transmissible, there'd be more support for like, OK, let's just go about living because it's this in between um, where it's more transmissible, but milder. It raises a lot of genuinely difficult political questions. But I do think it is uh, it is a variant that might prepare us for endemic covid, which for people who don't know endemic covid is basically you live with a low level of virus circulating around, low levels of case numbers. They don't get to zero, but they're low, they're not they're not anything near what we're seeing now for an indeterminate amount of time, maybe forever, much like we live with Other with the flu and with common colds. Now, this was was not the case at the beginning of the pandemic when we did not have these vaccines, these life-saving vaccines or these life-saving treatments. Now it is. And I do think you're getting to the point where you, once this, and again, this is all once this wave passes, like we're in it now, but once this wave passes, you've got to start having off-ramps, metrics, you have to be prepared for the next possible variant, You have to have all this stuff in place so that, A, people aren't caught off guard next time there may be a variant, but, B, there is a path for society to go on living and people to go on living their lives. Um, I do think the politics around the pandemic already seem to be changing for Democrats and Republicans. Over the last few weeks, we've seen Democratic mayors and governors fight to keep schools and businesses open. Meanwhile, just a few weeks after Ron DeSantis refused to answer a reporter's question about whether he's been boosted, Donald Trump said this in an interview with OAN.
4: Many politicians. I watched a couple of politicians be interviewed, and one of the questions was, "Did you get the booster?" Because they had the vaccine, and they oh, they're answering it like. In other words, the answer is yes, but they don't want to say it because they're gutless. You got to say it.
2: Gutless. Uh, what do you make of Trump's comments? What's what's his game plan here? And I use the word uh, plan extremely loosely.
3: <laughs> well, based on what reporters like Maggie Haberman have tweeted and reported. It seems like this is largely about Ron DeSantis, who Trump is angry at, jealous of, threatened by, and DeSantis has sort of very prominently refused to say whether he was boosted or not for fear of trying to trying to avoid that situation Trump found himself in when he was at that rally in Alabama a few months ago and talked about the vaccines and got booed by his own people. And so this is like a dig at DeSantis, which is ultimately at the end of the day, these Trump things are never- about some sort of strategy. They're just sort of about a grievance with someone and a chance to like attack someone who he is he doesn't like or feels threatened by and think that's what this is. But it is, I will say, great politics.
2: <laughs> you think it's great politics for Trump?
3: Yeah. I mean think how about
2: it. How do you think it plays? I'm just curious as how it how that plays with the Republican base, which has been, you know, their opinions range from anti-vaccine to vaccine hesitant to booster hesitant to anti-booster. Like, this This is not a base that um, is in love with the vaccines. Though, you know, a good number of Republican voters, of course, have taken the vaccine.
3: It – well, a couple things. One, in the short term, and the short term being this midterm election, the pandemic is the Republicans' greatest weapon. And they have this message that is more Americans have died from the pandemic – from COVID under Biden than Trump. Now, they're – that really absolves Republicans of their exact role in convincing their voters to not get the vaccine, and therefore making them die at an incredibly yeah. high rate. So
2: they a bit, but a bit, yeah.
3: As like not substance, but soundbite. That is a message, and it is Biden promised to end the pandemic, and the pandemic is not over. And it's like, as we said, that's not Joe Biden's fault personally. Like, not that it's been perfect, but it's a much thing bigger than one president can end it. But that's the message. The biggest vulnerability in that message is the anti-vaccine sentiment among Republicans, because. It's not just that – it is true that the majority of the unvaccinated are Republicans, but the majority of Republicans are vaccinated. And mm-hmm. so that is a yeah. small minority. Whether well, I think Trump's power over the base is would greatly exceed their qualms about the vaccine were he to run again in 2024. I also don't think anyone of substance is running against him if he does it. But I went back on a project I've been working on that will be announced at some point in the near future – Went back and looked at all of the how the Republicans talked about the vaccine in November and December. They fucking love the vaccine when Trump was president. Ronnie Jackson, gonna get the vaccine. Ron Johnson applauding the vaccine. Love Operation Warp Speed. So once once if Trump decides that he wants to get credit for developing the vaccine and then attack Joe Biden for screwing up the rest of the pandemic, I think the vast like maybe not Ann Coulter but the but the actual voters are going to follow him right along right back to where they were two years ago.
2: Yeah, and I think and and Trump is also doing what Youngkin successfully did in Virginia, which is saying I got the vaccine, I like the vaccine, I got the booster, I like the booster, but it's up to you. I don't like the mandates, um, which is you know. Why do you think that um, so many elected Democrats have been fighting against closures during this wave? What's changed there?
3: Well, one, we know a lot more, but parents are sick of closures. They are, I think we have, we know, and have enough research to know that we can keep kids as safe as possible in the situation and that the cost of kids being out of school for the kids themselves, for the community, for the family is so high. And you look at the, the polling, it's very clear. It's like 30% support, 65% opposition to closing schools or returning to remote learning. So no one wants to be on the side of the, 30, the 30% the thirty issue.
2: Well, and the other big thing, I mean, kids over five, unlike vaccinated. our kids, unlike yes. our kids, uh, have access to vaccines. And if you're a vaccinated child over five, then, your chance of a really bad outcome is extremely extremely small um now the what the, now what's the reason that the debate right now is a little messy is because a lot of these schools aren't closing because yes. ev- everyone's saying close them down and it's it's dangerous it's everyone's getting sick, and a lot of teachers are getting sick and a lot of staff are getting sick, and you know they end up with uh, they end up uh, recovering they a lot of them aren 't going to the hospital, but they're still out for a week um or you know, some someone has COVID or a student has COVID, and they shut a whole bunch of they sh- shut classrooms down, they shut whole schools down, they send people home, they quarantine, they isolate. You come, I mean, it's like a real mess.
3: Yeah, I mean that you raise a very important point. So there is a bit of a straw man argument here. With other than a couple of notable exceptions, like what was happening in Chicago a few weeks ago, almost no one is arguing to close schools proactively because of. A surge in COVID cases. That like that's not what democratic mayors are doing. It's not what democratic governors are doing. No one's doing that. But like, as you point out, some schools are being forced to close or have classrooms closed for the same reason that flights are getting canceled. The Starbucks by my house is closed. Like there, are people are you're getting there. It's spreading so fast and uh, to so many people because it's so transmissible. Even if most of those people are having very you know relatively minor symptoms, that it is disrupting life and schools are a part of that. This is not this is not 2020 all over again.
2: Right. And just, you know, the other thing that's changed is the is the politics around this. The USA Today poll from this week, do you support or oppose the following policies to slow the spread of Omicron? I thought these numbers were interesting. So 54 percent approval for masks in public spaces, higher than I even expected. Um, 64 percent approval for social distancing in public spaces. Only 41% approval for vaccine requirements for public uh, spaces. It is interesting that the support for vaccine requirements, which started, I would say, majority support, then sort of went down to 50-50 and is now a little bit below that. Um, you know, I guess the the Republican sort of disinformation machine has been doing a, a really working overtime there. Um, support for remote learning, 29%. Support for a full shutdown for six weeks. 22%. A glo- so, that, that
3: question is amazing. Yeah. A global shutdown for six weeks to stop the spread forever. Who no, supports yeah, out, shutting finally, the world
2: down? Well, the, the exaggeration was both on the world side and then to end the pandemic forever. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's like I a- think <laughs> one thing on the vaccine mandates, and we've seen this throughout, is that support is generally higher when the question is specific. Right, because mm-hmm. public spaces is like. Do you mean you can't? People who don't have the vaccine can't go to the grocery store.
2: Walk outside, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, but yeah.
3: when they say for like gyms or concerts or government office building, support is generally it's a little higher. Much higher.
2: It's a little higher, yeah. How do you see the pandemic shaping the midterm campaign?
3: I mean, like, I hope to God that it has faded somewhat into the background, right? We like, like that maybe the the environment. Politically and socially and culturally, America looks more like it did in that sort of late spring, pre Delta summer, where people were getting things were starting back to normal. People were, you know, were vaccinated. It was easy to get a vaccine if you wanted one, and people were living their lives again. And you just didn't have this constant over, you know, yin yang between can we do the things we want to do? Should we do the things we want to do? And you sort of have like reached a level of stability that seems you know, based on what a lot of the experts think very, not guaranteed, but very possible. And if that's the case, then I think that will improve the national mood, which would be better for the party in power.
2: I think that's right. I think if Democrats need a message, either because the virus is still circulating, or there's another variant, or because Republicans decide to make a political issue of it, I would make the message all about the vaccines. I would, remember our jobs chart in 2012? Like, I would carry around a chart of the death rate among vaccinated versus unvaccinated when Republicans start doing the, oh, more Americans have died under Joe Biden. And it would hit the shit out of Republicans for lying to people about the vaccines, which they have been doing for a long time now. And then Democrats should talk about how they want to keep our schools and our economy open by making sure that more people are vaccinated so that we don't get new waves and new variants. And Republicans are standing in the way of that.
3: It was right you know, before. I, I would
2: make it much more complicated than that. Yeah,
3: it was right before at the, everything went down in Afghanistan where Biden went to the podium and then just kicked the living shit out of Ron DeSantis for stopping, um, preventing local communities and schools from having mass mandates if they wanted one for, you know, I mean, Republicans are doing crazy stuff. They are basically paying people not to get vaccinated in Florida. If you are unvaccinated and you lose your job, it's elsewhere. They'll pay you to come to Florida. I mean, it is like there's there's a real strong examples case to
2: abound of them uh, attacking vaccines, lying about vaccines, making it harder for people to get vaccines. Uh, it They should it should go. We should throw it right back in their face. That's why Trump is do it. That's why Trump is starting to be, you know, more positive about the vaccines. He sees the politics. He gets it. Uh, Before we go, uh, we're going to bring a listen to do our take appreciator segment uh, next. But just as we were recording, the Supreme Court did hand down their decision as expected from the oral arguments. uh, They um, knocked down the Biden uh, vaccine mandate for employers. So that's not great. Um, What do you do? What do you do for your Biden administration?
3: I think you use the message that you just laid out for how you talk about yeah. the Republicans in the fall. It is time. This is a Republican Supreme Court that mm-hmm. is making it easier for Republican governors and Republican politicians to prolong the pandemic.
2: And I think, look, there are other vaccine mandates that are being upheld, particularly around healthcare workers, things that are directly related to the federal government. So I think, and I was saying this earlier, I think you try to, over the next year to two years, Institute vaccine mandates anywhere you can, right? Federal level, state level for for Democratic-controlled states, local level, right? Like you try to just get as much done as possible. I, at this point, I wonder if they're going to look at um, requiring vaccines for getting on a plane, which I think they didn't look at before because they figured the employer uh, requirement would take care of that. Now that it's not going to, maybe you look at that. So I, again, it's going to be patchwork. It's going to be messier than we'd like, but I think you try to y- use a lot of courts and a lot of other places have upheld vaccine requirements including the Supreme Court um, in other instances okay when we come back we'll bring on Alyssa for a round of Take Appreciators
0: Just go to NetSuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's NetSuite.com slash podcast25.
2: Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally.
3: Take an average of the polls?
2: To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. All right, before we go, we're going to play another round of our favorite game, Take Appreciator, but this time... We're joined by the co-host of Hysteria and one of our favorite people on earth, Alyssa Mastromonaco. Hey, Alyssa. You
7: guys, I could cry looking at you. I mean, I really, <laughs> you're like, the old—the real downside of this whole COVID pandemic has been not being able to, you know, see the both of you in person.
2: I know. Same here. Soon. Soon, Alyssa.
7: Soon. My hair will be brown by then.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Chief Take Officer Elijah Cohn, what do we got?
6: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Take Appreciators. I'm going to share some notably bad punditry with you. The producers have seen these takes. John, Dan, and Melissa, have not. They'll give their reactions and rate them on a scale of one to four politicos. Let's just jump right into it, guys. This one is hot off the presses. I just finished adding it. There's a suggestion from EJ, uh, who works on our politics team. Very topical. From the Washington Post, titled, How Kirsten Cinema Defended the Filibuster and Bipartisanship. Here's the quote cinema also exhibited passion about something that doesn't usually elicit such emotions in politics these days by partisanship and moderation. Guys, I know this one's fresh. Your reaction.
2: I, I want to hear Alyssa. I want to hear Alyssa take this one.
7: You guys, I have real issues with her. they are <laughs> many fold. Um, I believe, Elijah, you tried to stump me, but I did check out CNN before I got on here. And I think in her speech, she talks about the disease of division. Um, Also, you guys, she gave the speech as Joe Biden was on her way up to the hill. So anyway, it's the shittiest, grossest, like most disrespectful thing she could have done. I think she's a cunt. That's what I have to say.
3: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. I mean, do we have to beep that? No, you you don't. That's the first ever use. I'm
7: a woman. I mean, okay, man. And every it was so many layers of assholeness um, that, like, you know that she played like a combative video game before she went down to the Senate floor and was like, "You are a maverick. You are a maverick." And like, "Bitch, you're not a maverick." Okay, no, you're trash.
2: There is, there is that she, all she wants to be is John McCain and she is
7: not John McCain. We
2: knew John McCain. We ran against John McCain. She's no John
7: McCain. <laughs> she's,
2: she's no John McCain. So how
7: is that hot take? Um,
2: <laughs> I'm guessing that's, I'm guessing you're going to give it then four, four, four playbooks. Four
3: playbooks. Are four they playbook. politicos or are they playbooks? I think we're having, a, I thought they were playbooks. They are, I think yeah, it's yeah, four, poli- I think for a
2: loop.
6: They are politicos. Whatever. And four politicos is a full playbook. Yeah. Oh, uh,
3: so I
2: she, almost called sorry, you out on bad. Twitter
3: yesterday for this. Same.
2: I am sorry. I apologize. I apologize. I am wrong. So yeah. Um. So full so full playbook, full, full playbook, playbook for you, full
7: playbook. Get a new identity, uh,
2: Dan.
3: The best part about this take is the idea that there is no one out there making the case for bipartisanship. That that's not the thing most fetishized by all people in American politics. So I give it three politicos for that reason.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say I I, I feel like if we're talking about Kirsten Cinema's speech. Yeah, the full playbook. If we're talking about specifically that Washington Post take, I might do I might do th- three just because I want to save some gas for the next couple takes.
3: Kirsten Cinema's speech gets uh something that's actually beyond a full playbook. It's what is that? Wh- it's a West Wing playbook. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a that's for a very small audience and hopefully a, a vanishingly small audience. <laughs> All right. Wow. All right, Elijah, what else you got? A lot.
6: Well, let's go to the future. Let's get out of 2022. I want to fast forward to 2024. So I think a lot of people knew this one was coming. This is a piece from oh. the New York Times titled Biden-Cheney 2024. Uh, so this piece talks about Israel and how there's like a large modernist coalition that defeated B.B. Netanyahu's far right government by putting aside their differences and coming together. And then argues we should do the same thing in America. Uh, Because democracy is on the line by having Biden run in 2024 with Liz Cheney as his running mate. Here's a quote. This is this is the democratic way of defeating a threat to democracy. Not doing it is how democracies die. So anyone want to guess who wrote it?
2: I mean, it was obviously Tom Friedman. (laughs) Obviously. Because because it sounds like the, the opening paragraph reads like. A parody that someone would write about a Tom Friedman column where he immediately starts talking about Middle Eastern politics with Israel and Palestine in order to talk about make his, in order to make his case for a ticket that has Joe Biden and Liz Cheney. <laughs> Liz Cheney with a cons- Liz Cheney who again, we have said many times, like, good for her, she's doing the right thing. Really respect her. Thinks she's a great messenger on TV. Um, Her constituency is, I don't, what? What is Liz Cheney's constituency? Like, like, like 10 former Republicans at this point?
3: The only thing I would say about this take, which really takes itself down, (laughs) is what could possibly go wrong with a member of the Cheney family as vice president?
7: (laughs) See, I did see this because I replied to Pfeiffer's tweet with when I really feel passionately about something, I go into the 90210 uh, Dylan McKay eye roll emojis or whatever they are. And I was like, is he kidding? Also, I mean, Netanyahu was prime minister for like 15 years. So it kind of like I'm all for Israel, but like it took them a long time to get rid of him too. Um and I thought that his article Fair. would have been more compelling if he said, like, Bernie and Liz Cheney. Now, that's an interesting conversation starter. But, like, who do Biden <laughs> and Liz Cheney together actually appeal to? It seems like he's missing something.
3: Also.
2: Maybe maybe the Ed Board. That- maybe the New York <laughs> Times editorial board. All those, all those nerds.
3: I mean, in fairness to Tom Friedman, as anyone who is a long-term reader of his column knows, he gets all of his best ideas from cab drivers during international travel. <laughs> and because of the pandemic, he's been unable to travel or get in cabs. So he's scraping the bottom of the take barrel these days. All
2: right. So, Politico, ready? Melissa, what do you uh, – I know, mean, I feel final? like
7: he's probably a three. I'm going to go with a three because it was very expected. I don't expect better than this.
2: Oh, that's a good – It's on par, par for, for his takes. Point i'm I'm going with the full playbook on this one just because it was again the 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 spirit of this game is is take appreciators and appreciating a real triggering take and I can't imagine a take more triggering than Tom Friedman talking about Biden and a cheney joining forces also by making an analogy to Middle East politics. I just <laughs> I can't imagine anything more triggering it's they did it. he did it. Congrats to you, Tom Friedman.
3: I'm going three because i I I want to hold out hope that Tom Friedman is going to give us an even more Tom Friedman take before this election is over.
2: Cool. Cool. Okay. Excellent. All right. All right, Elijah. Last one. Here we go. So
6: this one is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, It's a piece titled Hillary Clinton's 2024 election comeback. The quote (laughs) is just the subheader of the article, which sums it up. Uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have become unpopular. It may be time for a change candidate. Any guesses as to who wrote this.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes, I have a guess. (laughs) Please. Doug Schoen.
6: (laughs) That's correct. Um, I would note that Doug Schoen has wrote uh, this piece in the past. In 2011, he wrote a similar piece uh, encouraging Barack Obama to not run in 2012 uh, in favor of Hillary Clinton. Hmm.
2: How about it, Alyssa? Should we haul out the uh, Should we haul out the helicopter? Should we um, Should we start calling some of the hillraisers? You
7: guys, I feel like when Hillary Clinton saw that article in her clips, she was like, "Have you not read my new t- true crime thriller?" She's like, "Even I've moved on." Like Jesus Christ!
2: Pokemon, go to the bookstore. Totally. <laughs> I mean, there's so many <laughs> different
3: ways to look at this. One, a little background for people who may not know who Doug Schoen is. He was the longtime consulting partner to Mark Penn, America's worst political consultant in American history. He mm-hmm. advi- he's a, advised Bill Clinton in his presidency. Also helped lead Mike Bloomberg to spend a quarter of a billion dollars in order to win all the delegates in either American Samoa or Guam. I can't remember which. And is a frequent and very thirsty Fox news guest.
2: Very thirsty. But I would just say,
3: here's one way to think about this take, which is why I think I should get the full playbook is in order to beat Trump, we should replace the person who beat Trump with a person who lost to Trump.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just so crazy. It might work. (laughs) So, Alyssa, what's your rating? What's your, fi- what's your final? Uh, I'm gonna go, with, final words I'm gonna on go this? with
7: three. I'm gonna go with three.
2: I too, I'm gonna go with three. I think it's it's a little partly because he wrote the same like like Elijah pointed right. out, he wrote the same column in 2012. It's he's getting lazy. It's getting lazy. Yeah, get a new take. Get a new take, Shon. Dan, your rating?
3: Uh full playbook for this one. Powerful.
2: Full playbook.
3: <laughs> <Powerful>. <laughs> I do want to
6: say I do want to race in with you guys. Like I like I'm always watching the takes and the takes this week have made me want to upgrade this from a take to a full blown narrative. Uh mm. about you know 2024, other candidates. A lot of people have been talking about this. What do you guys make of this new narrative that we have? Like as obviously we had it in 2012 as we just talked about, but
2: I will say that it is uh sped up even from the usual uh, pontification about presidential elections because it's the beginning of 2022. We got an election to talk about that's this year that's still several months away. <laughs> 10 or 11 to be exact. <laughs> and so I don't know. If you people want to do some some wild pontificating, we got the midterms for you. And then then maybe you can think about 2024. I don't know.
7: I agree. Not ready.
2: I make that I make an exception for uh, Donald Trump, who's everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but who's everywhere all the time, so it's hard to ignore. But on our side, it's yeah, take take it easy. Take it easy.
6: Cool. Well, thanks guys for another great edition of the Take Appreciators.
2: Elijah, thank you. And Alyssa, thanks for joining guys, us. Guys, I thought we, we were I thought
7: we were gonna hit on like some. Sex in the City and Just Like That hot takes because I was making an appearance. But I guess we're going to stick with Liz Cheney and Joe Biden.
2: Alyssa, can you give us your hot take on And Just Like That since Love It talks about it on Love It's not here because it's the Thursday pod, but he talks about it now every he talks about it as much as Tommy talks about Emily in Paris. So I know it's, I'd know love to hear the whole take.
7: thing is very confusing, quite frankly. Um, mostly, I think that Carrie has lost her sense of humor entirely. And I'm mm. not entirely loving how they're depicting women of a certain age because like, I don't know, let Carrie have a hip replacement because her fucking hip is fucked up. Why does it have to be a genetic disorder that she has? I just um, mostly I'm in it for Miranda and and to see, you know to see if Carrie laughs by the end or makes me laugh. That's kind of where
3: I'm at. Her husband died three episodes ago.
7: Okay, it was like (laughs) six episodes ago, Pfeiffer. Keep up. She's still not making me laugh. And she was so judgy to Miranda. So what, Miranda? Like, if she really didn't want to pee in the Snapple bottle, she could have just yelled, hey, Miranda. She didn't have to be so dramatic about it and then slut shame Miranda, who's clearly going through some shit. Also, Miranda too let her hair go gray. Just saying. (laughs)
2: Also, Lisa, you're, you're a much smarter and funnier podcast host. They should have asked you about uh, you guys, you know, doing the whole podcast storyline. What even story is line.
7: that? What even is that podcast storyline? It's not funny. Terrible. It's
2: not funny. Terrible.
7: It's not reflective of the work that goes into them either.
3: I mean, that is, that's my greatest critique. It's such a poor depiction of the podcasting industry. I mean, I really feel maligned. <laughs>
2: <laughs> grievance. Now we've turned to grievance here at the end of the of the end of the episode.
7: Oh, you guys, thanks for having me. It was such a delight to see your faces, if only for a few hot take minutes.
2: Let's do it again soon. I mean, I miss, I miss you. I'm, ar- I I'm around. Out. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, thank you, and uh, we will see you guys next week. Have a good weekend. Bye, everyone. Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Madison Hullman, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.